everyone, and welcome back to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, your host and president of the national Chicago-based consulting firm, Morton Group LLC, where we just celebrated 20 years of transformation through assessment, education, and action. Since the pandemic's beginning in March of 2020, organizations, foundations, individual donors, and everyone working on the front lines of our most urgent challenges have been emphasizing social determinants of health. These pieces of our identities and environments can predict how healthy we are, our access to and experience with care, and even our life expectancy. Now, health equity is being prioritized as we see disparate COVID positivity numbers ebb and flow with some regularity within specific communities more than others. There are organizations and companies all over the country and all over the world that have worked towards equitable healthcare spaces for years, if not longer. And I'm delighted to be joined by one of the individuals leading this work in her field. Dr. Deanna Derahey of the American Medical Association, or AMA, will be joining us today. Deanna is the Vice President of Health Equity Strategy at AMA's Center for Health Equity, which embeds health equity across the organization to become part of the practice, process, action, innovation, and organizational performance and outcomes. Recently, alongside two of her colleagues, Deanna edited and contributed to April's volume of the AMA Journal of Ethics titled Health Equity in U.S. Latinx Communities. This issue of the journal includes articles like Should Clinicians Be Activists? Latino Invisibility in the Pandemic, and Language and Health Inequity in U.S. Latinx Communities. We are thrilled to have Deanna join us today to discuss this publication and her larger role at AMA, which involves providing strategic direction through alliances and programming. Deanna holds a master's in public health from the University of Michigan and a doctorate in health policy and management from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She comes from a varied career that includes philanthropy, government, and nonprofit programs, which I'm sure she'll tell us all about. We are thrilled to welcome Deanna Darahay to Gathering Ground. Hi, Deanna. Hi, Mary. Good to hear. Be good to be here. Good to be seen, even even on Zoom. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Right. So, you know, as we like to do here on Gathering Ground, we want to start with a little bit of your background. Um, tell us a little bit about um, how you got how how it all started and and what led you to um, this area of health equity work. So, let's just start. Out with, where were you born? Where was I born? I am from a town called Saginaw. I'm from Saginaw, Michigan, uh, which um, I, my, your audience isn't on camera, right? So I can't show you the mitten as it were, but we are north of Flint, south of Midland. Um, we are an industrial, we were an industrial hub and, and let's see what else. Ford and GM oh, were wow. big, big employers as it were in the steam, steel mills. Okay. And so. so how did you get from there? to the AMA. Interesting. So as, as many Michiganders do, as I am, you decide which state school you're going to. You're going to Michigan State or you're going to the University of Michigan. And I, I am a Wolverine. I went to the University of Michigan for my undergrad and my master's in public health. Uh, I was lucky enough to be at a place where the School of Public Health was top ranked at the time when I was there, and it still is, still remains. And then when I graduated, I had to decide where I was going to go from there, where did I want to do the work, and Chicago called. And so I came to Chicago. Um, I worked, uh, and it's funny because Chicago connects itself, like we think of ourselves as a big city, and we right. are in the Midwest, but we're also all these right village connections, right? And so I started my career, actually, my first public health uh, programming was doing HIV education um, at Howard Brown. I didn't know that. No less, right. And so I was at Howard Brown, then I went to the Northeast Councils, and I did district health work there, um, went to the Illinois Public Health Institute, um, got my feet wet in that arena, and then went to the uh, Chicago Community Trust um, and started working um, in health, um, supporting health work around Chicago and the neighborhoods was there when they started the Lake County Foundation, Community Foundation. So got to be part of philanthropy, which for me was that bridge, right? That allowed people to be innovative. And that's when I learned about like how we could be innovative. How do we take a little bit and build out there? Then, you know, I went to the WK Kellogg Foundation and did, got to do racial equity work there. Um, decided to have some babies in between all this. 
um, had two daughters and then was trying to figure out what to do next, like where I wanted to be. And um, did community work in the Latinx community um, all across the country. And then AMA came calling. A colleague of mine that I had known for years, Dr. Aletha Maybank, had just been hired as the first chief health equity officer. She came from the New York City Health Department. And I congratulated her because as women of color, our job is to support each other, especially in this equity work, because it is a long road. And so just like you've always done, I learned from the best. We call each other and be like, congratulations. If you need anything, let me know. Like where, wherever you need me. And she said, you want to come work here? And I said, oh, that's not what I was talking about. And she's like, look, we have an opportunity. And I, you know, am a student um, of community organizing and was like, right, we do have an opportunity. And quite honestly, I'm a Midwest girl. So I was at the East Coast at the time and said, you know what? This is one of those things where destiny says, come on home. So moved back to Chicago with my family, um, with my two young children and got to work on all the work that there is to do um, at the American Medical Association and with equity. And there is a lot to do. There, there is a is. lot to do. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, so let me just say, what was the attraction about the area of health and health equity before we talk more directly about the AMA? What was the initial attraction that moved you in that direction? So I'm whatever I'm using air quotes, classically trained in public health. Public health makes sense to me, right? So be clear, when I was growing up, you became, you know, like to make your family proud, there were a lot, there, you were a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Mm -hmm. Those are the things you were, right? If you're going to go to college, you better be one of those, right? And so I went into pre-med um, and realized quickly, like, medicine made sense. But when I was introduced to this world, and I had never heard about it before, of public health, I was like, so let me get this straight. Like, we are supporting the whole health of the community. Like, yeah, of course that makes sense. Like we should care about, because that is where my, my, my culture, my background brings me, right? We're collective people. You have to care about your aunts and uncles, your, your aunties, your, your uh, theas. You have, you have to understand that, right? We're all in this together. And so that public health made sense to me. And so that's why I came to public health. And I was, and it was common sense. I grew up in the time of HIV and AIDS, right? where we used to say, you remember this, like if it could have been cured with an aspirin, millions of people would still die. And right. the millions of people who would die were people who looked like you and I, right? right? Like the, and so- definitely the case. And, and it still is with a lot of disease. We just saw it in COVID-19. And so for me, I was like, okay, like this is where I can make a difference. This is, this is where I was my organizing, my culture together of like, if we can make this happen, we can support health in a much larger way. And so that's what brought me to health is health to me, is my venue, my avenue, my understanding of how to get to social justice. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, certainly the various uh, positions you've held, it, it seems like it's yeah, just led you directly to the AMA. So the, uh, the AMA, American Medical Association, huge organization, national organization. Uh, talk to us about what the AMA broadly does before we uh, talk um, in, in more detail about the health equity office. Yeah. So AMA is the House of Medicine, right? It was founded in 1847. It is a legacy organization. It grew up along with the U.S., right? It's the single largest physician advocacy organization in the United States. It's the only national association that convenes 190 state and specialty societies. And the idea is that it speaks for, as a house of medicine. It speaks as a unified voice for physicians. We are a 501c6. We are a trade organization. So we are a membership organization. Um, and we bring that all together. So AMA is that advocacy voice. And when people think about AMA, even in myself, when I was not part of it, it was like, if medicine says this, it's, it is true, right? Like this is a weird, we, we work in that way. So that's who we are. And so there's a lot of work to be done in that. So. And so when you talk about it being a membership organization, are, is it just for doctors primarily? Yeah. So it's a physician organization. So physicians, um, state medical societies, residents, medical students, we're supposed to represent all of them. So we have individual members. We have over 250,000, so over a quarter of a million okay. uh, physician members as individuals. So I used to work at the American Dental Association mm -hmm. and the American Hospital Association. Mm -hmm. And of course, Chicago is association town. So it makes sense that, yes, this all fits together very nicely. Um, so when you think about uh, the AMA, and certainly as I've, you know, I should say full disclosure, we've, we've done work in the last <laughs> couple of years with the AMA around gender equity. That was really part of how the um, equity office started. Talk about the idea behind 
um, the health equity division at AMA because you were there at the very beginning. Right. So I think, so what I didn't say is our mission, and this took me a long time. I remember applying for the AMA and I was like, what is their mission and Googling it and having to find it. And so this solidified why I wanted to work with the AMA. The AMA in its core, its mission work is to promote the art and science of medicine. Okay. We can all get around that. And the betterment of public health. And so that was right up my alley, right? So it's the betterment of public health. And AMA in some shape or form is run, it's a membership organization, right? So it has a house of delegates. So its delegates decide, right? Its membership votes and decides on what it's going to do. And so we have been, or AMA has been on this path towards understanding and figuring out equity, looking at social determinants of health, having committees. And so in 2018, um, there was a report about uh, continued progress towards health equity, like what should AMA be doing? And the recommendation was that the Board of Trustees took on was to create a center and equivalent to facilitate, um, the, facilitate coordinate, track the, the AMA health equity activities. This was an important reason that brought me to this because it wasn't a management decision around equity. Not that management didn't have ideas around it, but it was the House of Medicine said, hey, we're going to take this on. And that comes from a different place, right? That means that your members are seeing this and the work that needs to be done. And so that's how it was started. It was said, we're going to do this. We're going to facilitate it. And to be clear that it wasn't going to just create equity at AMA. They're going to facilitate that AMA as an organization had to do it, which included its membership and also its its role in, in global medicine. So that's how the center started. It was a directive. They hired a chief um, health officer, equity officer, and then we moved from there and started to do the work. Wonderful. So let's talk about um, your role in the health equity division, um, which has it evolved, you know, from where, how it started since you were there at the beginning? Yeah. So it's an interesting, so I'm, I'm vice president of health equity strategy and development. So that, well, that's I, different than the last time I talked it to was. you. It was. <laughs> I, came, I, came, I came in as a director and I'm a vice president and I'm proud to say I'm I believe I'm the only or one of the only Latina vice presidents at the AMA as a whole. And so I say that to say that I'm not going to be the last. So all of you listening, this is this is how we make these break through these ceilings. That's right. And congratulations. Thank you for that. Um, so my role is one of the first things we did is we spent 18 months doing a strategic black plan um, for the AMA about what it could look like. And the strategic plan is called the Organizational Strategic Plan to embed racial justice, right? We expanded the racial justice to advance health equity. So we put our stake in the sand. And, you know, um, I've learned from you, Mary, actually, quite how to run strategic planning processes. So it was a long process, right? It took us 18 months to write this process. And it's a three-year plan, right? So as soon as you write it, it becomes, um, it's moving and shaping and developing. So what it did, though, was set the foundation of work. So that's what I got to do. I got to organize and say, where do we start in this work? And any of you who ever read it will realize it is 60-some pages. And the actual strategic plan, for those of you who know strategic plans, is about five, right? There's five of those. <laughs> but we had to start where organized medicine was. We had yeah. to start about with all the theories, like what is equity? How is that different from equality? What is racism? What is our role in it? Where do we move? What is our history? And all of that is in one document, one tome. And so for me, that was an important part of the work is like, let's get it down because once you, and it's a public facing document. So once you put your stake in the sand, you're now held accountable to that. And accountability to me is what makes equity work work. Like we have to be accountable to, to people, places, things. And so that accountability was one of the first things we did. And now we're moving toward it. We're operationalizing it. We're learning from it. And people are like, well, it's a document. And it's like, yes. And at the same time, we needed to have that document. AMA, I still get calls from people that'll say, AMA's never done this before. Now, we don't know if we truly believe they're going to do, they're going to change, but this is the first real step. And that's an important step, right? You've got to try it, right? You've got to, you've got to imagine it. You've got to uh, put it out, if you will, uh, to, so that you can be held accountable. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit, though, about uh, the AMA really saying uh, that racism is a public health issue, because that also, I know, it, it, as you talk about the strategic plan, it's so interesting that you talk about sort of making sure you are setting the context for anyone who's reading that report and making sure that they understand what your definitions are, what you mean when you say racism, what, what you mean when you talk about equity. It's so important for that contextual framework mm -hmm. to be present in the plan. And I, I was just so excited when I saw that uh, AMA 
you know, was saying, look, this is this is a public health issue. What was the reaction to that? And how did you get to that point? I mean, I think so. We are very lucky to have really smart delegates. Right. So our work is to inform the delegation. We are a membership organization. Right. They're the ones who decide. And in 2020, before the strategic plan was even out, they had decided that they made a directive. Right. That they made a public statement that racism is a public health threat. Right. Like, let's be clear. They said that racial essentialism in medicine has to go. Like we can no longer do that, right? And they wanted to start, and they started talking about policing reform because it was right after the George Floyd. Like we wanted to recognize what that meant and what police brutality was. They talked, you know, so they have been moving in this direction, which is amazing, right? Um, and and we're proud of them. And we recognize for all the, the listeners out there, the people who are cynical, because I've been there too, is like, and we're behind, right? Because public health has been saying this for a while. Education has been saying it. But you know, when you organize this, it, it means something when it just doesn't come out from some scholar, when the organization and the people who, who make up that organization believe it. So yeah, we've been moving towards that and also understanding the intersectionality, right? That we start with race because race is one of those social constructs that dominate the U.S. and are institutionalized in many ways. And it is the and, right? It is the intersectionality. Absolutely. And we know that unless we address race, there will be no other equity. There won't be gender equity. There won't be LGBTQ equity. Race is still the primary uh, determinant of one success in this country. Yes. All the other isms are built off the white supremacy model, right? Exactly. And that's where they get their strength and their power. Right. And, exactly. and it's so funny you should say that because um, if you had mentioned white supremacy at some point, I would, as I was saying to some folks, I've mentioned the word, those that phrase more times in the last two years than I have in my entire life because- we're at that point where we can't kind of skirt around it. Right. You know, we just have to call it for what it is. And that every single one of us has been impacted by white supremacy culture. It's just not about white folks. We've mm -hmm. all uh, been impacted by it because that has been the standard. And I put that in quotes, air quotes, that that's been the standard for so long. Right. Um, so that's, that's a major step, I think, forward. One of the other things that's come up quite a bit, certainly during the pandemic, is people really understanding or trying to understand the social determinants of health. Right. So I would love to hear you just talk about the social determinants of health and, and how it impacts what we're learning about COVID. Yeah. So the social determinants of health are, you know, again, I'm going to age myself in, in this conversation. Uh, so when I started this work, it was called like health disparities. Right. And then we, and then we started talking about social determinants of health. So the easy as I've, I've come to work with medicine who sees itself at the far end, where we, we think about upstream and downstream, the far end with disease and injury and mortality. When we think about social determinants of health, they are the structural drivers and the social drivers that in, influence our health, right? They are the physical environment that we live in, the economic environment that we are subjected to, the social environment, the service environment. And they're all um, influenced and controlled by institutional, the structural drivers, institutional powers, which are all part of those root causes, right? Which are all influenced by the root causes, the isms that we talked about, right? White supremacy, racism, classism, sexism. So they, so if we think about that as the upstream, right? The root causes, they're then made into laws and rules. It's the way we do things, even our normative narratives about how we talk about people, places, and things, right? It's, it's both like, it's both the policy with the big P, right? And then those unru unwritten rules of social and cultural dynamics. And how they make their way into our living conditions, where we live. I mean, Chicago's big on that, where we all live and why we live there, right? Why we do the things we do. Why do we refer to those places as we refer to them? How come we're okay with certain kind of schooling and places like that? That becomes our reality. And those all impact our direct health outcomes, right? Like, are we able to go to a doc? Are we able to find a doctor nearby? Are we able, even if we wanted to, right? Are we able to get access to culturally relevant services for who I am? And so all of that affects our health, which affects our disease and injury, which affects our mortality. And so those are all. And I've been in maternal and child health for a long time. So we talk about how that happens generationally, right? We're learning a lot about allostatic load and this relationship to mothers, their unborn children and their children's children, right? How that all gets deeply rooted um, and who we are and, and and our life expectancies and outcomes. And you and you hear it all the time. So one of the things I talk about is your zip code determines, right? So the Chicago likes to talk about, it's both the West and the South side and the numbers I have with me right now. So like downtown Chicago, Gold Coast, like, right? There's a 16 year gay, uh, age gap, death, what they call the death gap, right? Between longevity, life of uh, life in the Gold Coast compared to when you go all the way out to Austin. 
right? And that's not because the people, you know, the people do look different, but that's, but it is their product. They are being impacted by the social drivers and the structural drivers of health. So that's what, I mean, that's, that's how I think about it. I mean, it's how we've been taught about it in public health. It's like, great. I can help Mary where she is, but if I don't understand Mary's full life experiences and what her resources and access think things are, I'm not actually solving for Mary's problem, right? I'm just helping Mary get through the day. That's right. That's, that's right. No, that's great. I mean, yeah. So really how we live, how we work, how we play, right? That's that's what it comes down mm-hmm. to. And the impact that uh, the context has on our on our overall well-being. Um, so let's talk about uh, Latinx health. And, uh, and in particular, some of the work you've been doing, um, what have you, you know, what, what has become clear to you as the pandemic has rolled out, as you've continued to uh, do this work at AMA and the Health Equity Division with regard to Latinx health? And let me just also say, while I'm saying Latinx, we know that everyone's not comfortable with that uh, term. What's, what's your preference or is it a case by case situation? <laughs> so I think it's I think one, it's a case by case situation. And I think that when I think about Latinx, right, and I've seen all the um the conversation about it, when I see it and I look at it, I think about inclusivity, right? And I think that's that's what the X gets to. Now, I come from a time and place, right? I told you I'm deeply rooted in the Midwest, uh, and my age and my social standing. Like for many years and to this day, still I consider myself a Chicana, right? Because it speaks to who I am. I also speak to myself as a Latina, and I own well, that talk because about, Deanna, talk about what Chicana means to you. So what Chicana is, is about um, working class Mexican American people, um, and the term you know has some debate, and some of the sociologists will probably be on me about this about where it comes out of the Brown Pride movement, specifically in California, right? Um, the, the and we think of a lot of times we think of the Cesar Chavez movement and the work of the Brown Power. So the work around there, but it speaks to the working class people, right? And and the evolving relationship we have as ancestry to Mexico, right? As as my grandfather likes to remind me, like we didn't move to the U.S. The U.S. moved on top of us, right? Like they are my that is my family. My family has been like. Even Ancestry.com will be like, so your family started right here and was Texas forever. And so the border moved over us, right? Um, And so that's what it meant. Now, as I grew up and got to college, Latino became, right, this more inclusive term. And I fought really hard to be a Latina, right? Because I wanted to be recognized for I am a woman. I am a brown woman. That means something, right? We aren't just, and now we've come to Latinx, right? So I, I see the evolution in that too. I mean, language change, words change, they mean different meanings at different times. I also organized at a time when I very proudly and worked very hard to develop the terminology and use it in places of women of color. Because at that moment in time in history, we needed to show solidarity with each other. And so it wasn't, you know, because people would be like, oh, that's just this grouping. It depends where, you know, word and language and how people, the autonomy, right? That's really what it comes down to. My autonomy to self-describe myself of who I am and my being in context in relation to the world that I am living in. So long and short answer. Yes, I am those things. And all the data tells you that what people want to be called is from their country of origin or where they have ancestry because they are not, we are over 28 countries of historical origin, right? Who are the Latinx, mm-hmm. so. Just like in the Asian American community in particular. Yes, yes. And so, and just like the Asian American community, there is this power in aggregating. So we get counted, right? Because we're very much about counting. And there is a need to desegregate because we don't all look alike, right? Speak alike, have the same colonial histories to the U.S., right? And it's not, I mean, so there are more countries wrapped up in that Asian grouping and the Latin American grouping. But we also see that in... um, you know, that is not uh, homogeneous in the black community either, right? So we, and we're starting to recognize that too. People who are, who are directly from Africa, people who are, our ancestors were formerly enslaved, people from South, um, I'm sorry, the, um, the islands. So we all have different relationships. We're coming to own that too, so. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, you know, things are changing. Uh, there is uh, less of a, I believe, less of an interest in just fully assimilating and not bringing any of your culture and heritage with you. And, that, and, and I think that's a good thing, of course, because we've lost, you know, many years ago, certainly when I started at Morton Group, we would talk about, we were only talking about diversity, right? And we were talking about a melting pot. Mm-mm, no more melting pot, right? Because that means 
that likely you're giving something up with regard to your your cultural heritage. And what we want to talk more about um, is the fact that people should be able to come to whether it's you know work or play as their authentic selves, as their full authentic selves, and for that to be welcomed in. And so, you know, we're all learning, and and it you know we just have to keep up with how things are changing. And and just like our work, I'm sure the work of the AMA is so impacted by what's happening in the world. As you said, you made a reference to George Floyd um, uh, being murdered in 2020 and how that put some things in motion. Um, and so um, that that is absolutely part of the work. So let's talk a little bit about this 2016 study that was published in the American Journal of Public Health. Um, let's talk about some of the rates of hypertension and higher levels of, of depression that we might see in some communities. Is that um, what you've seen, do you concur with some of the results from that report? Tell us a little bit about some of the particular challenges that folks may be meeting in these communities. So <clears throat> I won't speak to the particulars of the study because I don't have it in front of me, so I don't want to misquote it. But okay. what I do, I mean, it's it, it seems practical, right? And we need data and research points to tell us that racism kills, right? It's not race that puts me at risk. It's racism. And that's what the Afro-Latino study tells us, right? That, that, that racism and structural racism is so embedded that, you know, people that may come from the same country but have different phenotypes will have different health outcomes, different economic outcomes, different educational outcomes. And so I think, and <clears throat> U.S. racism, unique as it is, um, is bad for our health, right? So we used to call, we used to, in the Latino community, we used to talk about like the healthy immigrant theory, right? We used to talk about assimilation, but these social factors. For instance, I told you I was in maternal and child health. We didn't worry about Latino babies when I went to school because they were like, oh, they're fine because all Latinos are Mexican, of course, and they have good birth outcomes. They, they all do, right? As if we were all, again, and what we you dig into, the, even at that time you dug into it, you're like, well, one, um, that wanes after people assimilate because racism is bad. Right. Because they were like, oh, because it could be the diet or they're not walking as much. But what we didn't talk about was racism is bad for our health. It is bad for us. It has a weathering effect on us. It impacts our lives and our quality of life. And so there there, you know, there was that we also didn't talk about because we don't worry about things like I remember this specifically because I now talk about it in a different way. They kept going because they have those fat babies. Right. Because we didn't worry about fat babies back then. And it's still and. What we know now, right, is a lot of them had macrosomy, right? Their mothers had diabetes. We know that that had impacts on their health now, too. But it's because, and I do believe it's because that's why we need to be, have inclusion and diversity in these fields, because I could look at it differently than somebody else could look at it, right? Because I had a different perspective. Be like, but is that how it should be? Like, should we? I don't know if that's a true statement. I know it's a general statement. We want to believe these things. So that's all to say that I think that our communities, whatever color they may be, what languages they speak, we need these, we used to call it cultural competency, right? It's really about cultural fluidity. Uh, we need to have cultural safety and knowing that we can go to these places that speak our language, that look like us, that respect our situation um, and treat us like humans, right? Because it's a human right. So that we can get the, and that's what health equity is, right? That I can get the optimal health and I can achieve that, that, that I have the power to do that that I have the opportunity to do that. And so that's what we're looking at is for those things. And it's a constant journey, right? It's a constant, I told you I worked at Howard Brown, right? That was specifically for the LGBT community. And I've watched that get diverse over time too, right? Because there was a time and phrase where that meant a certain group of people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's evolved. Yeah, you know, primarily white gay men. <laughs> yes, right? And I came in as a Latina and they were like, so we gotta do something with her, <laughs> right? So, um, and so, yes. So I think, I mean, I don't even know what the question was, Mary, but I think that's answered some of yeah, that. No, but yeah, no. I mean, I think that there is, I think that there is this need to recognize, you know, this intersection island that we have the diversity and get the resources for that and to respect those, those, that's what it comes down to. So let's talk a little bit about colorism. <laughs> let's talk. And how it plays out in um, Latinx community. And, and certainly let me just say that we use Latinx uh, and it came to us because, and, and, you know, our understanding was that it was a, a group of folks who really wanted language to be more gender neutral, right? Because gender has just evolved and changed so much in the last uh, several years. Um, but when you think about uh, skin color uh, in the Latinx community, it's always interesting, right? When you look at a census and, and it'll, you know, have the breakdown of not 
not Hispanic, not, you know, what, what has been your sense of colorism and how it, it plays into racism and in some cases internalized racism within communities? Yeah. So I don't think it's any different than a lot of communities. I mean, there, we, so there's an, globally, we have a, a pandemic, an epidemic of anti-blackness right? Absolutely. Of othering, right? And it is not, right. and we have talked within the Latin, Latinx community that that is our job and our work to do, because it has not been a way. And we see it in other communities too, right? We see it in the Black and the African American community about how dark you are and whether you're allowed to pass. Those are all some of the same things that we see, right? That in the U.S. specifically, our phenotype allows us to get away with some things, allows us, allow us to pass for certain things and affords us some privileges, Right. And then we start to, then we internalize it, right? We internalize that work. And then we also play this thing about what the right, then we go the opposite way, right? About like what, what, what the right color is or what the right shade is, right? And I've been on either side of that, depending on what day it is in my family, right? I've been the darkest one in the family and I've been the lightest one in the family. And each one of them comes with like this ownership thing, right? And I am, you know, I am proud to be a Filipina uh, Mexican heritage. And so... And my, you know, and so I mark the barks as both Asian and Latino, which can, which offers me. So I giggle inside because I was like, yes, I get to mark all those boxes and hit confuse whoever that is around the things. And I have Afro Latino children, and I know about their heritage, right? And I get to watch my child claim that to be like, so we're African, right, mommy? Yes, you are. And so we're this, mommy, and it says, yes, you are. Like you are these things. But I think that colorism is one of those things that um, we don't like to talk about. Um, because we recognize is that it affords us um, certain privileges. And the U.S. in a lot of ways, one of the white supremacy rules, and you know this, is meritocracy, right? And so we'd have to rethink our own stories and our family's own stories if we were to admit um, some of these things, right? Because our, the whole American story in many ways is about how I earned it, right? And I persevered because we need those stories to kind of get around the blatant um, disinvestment in whole communities. And so we need to other and be like, I am being more like that and I am winning. So we are continue. it's a continuous struggle. It's something we have to work on. It's something that people have to recognize. Um, and I think that it is a, it is something we can't not talk about. Um, and we continue to have these conversations because They'll, to your point, like you said, like they'll say, well, Afro-Latinos are more closely, have more closely some health outcomes, right? We're closer to blacks than they do than white Latinos, right? Um, <clears throat> there's this whole kind of just dis, dis understanding that too. And so what is a white Latino compared to an Af, uh, Afro-Latino compared to an indigenous, right? Because we, we haven't even acknowledged that group of our indigenous Latinos, uh, Latinx population that is coming too, and how that may impact their health too. So Yes, there is work to be done. It is something we need to recognize. Internal colonialism is hard and it's painful. And my own family is doing it too because I watch, I watch my children who phenotypically look different, right? But are very much sisters. And, and so they get, to, they get to be in different worlds at different times um, and are still trying to navigate it because socially it's a very interesting place to be. Right. So when you, when you think about... Um sort of the state, if you will, for um, Latinx community. And I'm going to say communities, right? Because it's just not one. Um, where do you, where would you say we need to place some focus um, across the board? I mean, it obviously can be with regard to health outcomes, but just across the board, where do you think there needs to be greater attention paid uh, for just, uh, uh, you know, communities of people really being involved and considered, I would say, in a, in a uh, deeper fashion than they might have been. Right. So I'm going to go with health because that's where I stand in the world. And I think no, health is a social justice, right? Like, I know, big <laughs> surprise. I mean, I helped co-edit this American Journal of the AMA Journal of Ethics, first health equity in the U.S. Uh, Latinx community issue. And that's, that's what I was leading right. to. We're very excited about yes. it. But what I wanted to say, what, what was really important to me is when we were trying to develop articles for that, we were very, like, we were very quick to, to, for people to show up with like disease specific, right? And even if, I would bet if you talk to some people when they talk about, okay, Latino health, they'll be like, okay, diabetes, all right, hypertension, okay, obesity. Um, and then they'll talk about like other things like education, um, 
we'll talk about citizenship. So we'll talk about other things. And we don't talk about health as, as this overarching thing as well. So I think that we need to get out of the disease specifics. Again, it's about this holistic and how we think about people. And we need to understand this is what this is what colorism allows you to do. It, it allows you to pretend like you're not that group. If you look at our health trajectory, right? Racism hurts us, right? Racism hurts Latinos too. And we're seeing that trajectory. Our, our health is getting worse. We are not that far behind. Many of, you know, um, the African-American population, the black population, which has some of the worst health outcomes, right? I don't, that is not by coincidence, right? And so that's, that's what I think we need to do is we need to recognize that our health is, um, those things, those things like community, which protected us in the U.S., we break those things apart, right? We don't have the communities like we, we all talk about, right? The communities that, that the highly immigrant communities that are very tightly knit, right? We're seeing those kind of break apart. We're separating and we're going to different places. So we don't have those social protection factors. So my thing is about thinking about health is holistically because health will impact and because they're, they're reciprocal, right? Health will pick, impact your ability to get an education and be educated. It'll affect your able to earn and have income. It'll affect all of those things. And reciprocally, um, those things all impact your health. So for me, again, as I pointed out, like health is my thing to social justice. Like we need to kind of like preserve that. And it has a direct impact in our generations. I, I think it's my generation. No, my sister generation, that's good. Is going to be the first generation that lives fewer years Mm -hmm. or has life expectancy younger. I mean, a few years younger than their parents. I mean, it doesn't speak for all of us. So yes, I think that there is, we have to understand how COVID made us think about that, right? In lots of different ways. Right. So we're going to take a short break. And then when I come back, I want to talk about the journal and sort of, you know, why it came about, what was it like putting it together? What was the response uh, and all of that? Because that's actually what I saw that said, oh, we should, we should talk about this. Absolutely. So you're listening to Gathering Ground and we'll be back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. So we are back with uh, Dana Darahay, who is at the AMA in the Health Equity Division. And we're going to talk a little bit about this extraordinary journal uh, piece that you worked on. Uh, it, it was very exciting. It got my attention immediately. Tell me how it came about. Tell me what it was like working on it. We want all the details. Yeah. So the AMA's Journal of Ethics has been doing different kind of spotlight series on different groups, right? Um marginalized and minoritized groups to center them, right? That's part of equity work is centering the voices. So they've been doing a good job. One of the first things they did when I came on to the Center of Health Equity is they asked us if we would be interested in working with them in co-editing um, a journal on Latinx health. And so my colleagues, Diana Lemos um, and Fernando de Mayo and myself got to be co-editors on um, this issue that was dedicated to Latinx health. And so considering and around ethics and health, right? Um, And so we're super excited about it. It was um, almost 18 months in the making. So 18 months seems to be our magic number for me as as far as making things. And bringing together, inviting authors and bringing together and thinking about how we would curate this. I want to say that um, the Journal of Ethics, without even our prompting, offered was very excited about this opportunity and even offered to make this the first um, issue that was completely translated in Spanish. So it's available in Spanish and English, which was that important, is, right? Like these are the, these are the step things that like people are like, well, of course that would happen, but no, like mm-hmm. these are how we make advances. That's right. This is what equity is about. Exactly. Right. It's also the shuffling of paper. It's these big movements and it's all mm-hmm. the stuff in between. Um, and so we have, and we thought really hard, right? So I talk, just talked to you about not, not making things disease specific. I didn't want this to be a diabetes and hypertension. Those are very important things. We should talk about them and there are other things to talk about. And so when we started thinking about who we wanted to invite and who could talk about things, we wanted to talk about 
um, effort Latino identity and how that relates to health, right? We wanted to talk about um, how, you know, one of the other ones that we had was really important was about, because it was timely about the pandemic and the invisibility of the Latino community, the Latinx community during the pandemic, about who was getting counted as numbers, who wasn't getting served. But we also talked about some interesting things that we pushed about like colonialism as a social determinant of health in Puerto Rico. Like we were clear, like, let's talk about what this means, what that we talked about language and communities. You brought that up about how, how people feel included, um, clinical trials. And then we also talked about things that are important to me is about like, what do we know from our own traditional communities and learned teachings that can help us in current health situations? So um, one of my colleagues that I hold dear and I asked her to do this and she was like, this is different for me, was restoring birth as a ceremony to promote health equity. Like what ceremony meant around birth? about community health workers and how that collective nature is actually a natural resource for how we support health. So we have those articles. And so there's an amazing amount of articles and podcasts, and I'm very proud of this. Like I sent it out to everyone I knew, including yourself, which was like, you have to read this. This is this is one step. It's not the end, right? Um, and, and we do it, a, and a lot of those talk about the diversity in the community. Um, and how it's impossible to have one issue that talks about all of it and, and thinking about this as opening doors to larger conversations. Um, so, yep, that's, that, that, that was that, um, that was that one issue. And we continue to kind of like make sure that we bring together. The other thing is out of community, we brought those authors together and said, we want to support you in this as well. We want to continue these conversations because we don't talk about these conversations. This is how you build the breadth of the field, right? Is by having these one conversations, having this one publication, and then building off of that. That is that is in many ways how this work changes and evolves. So how do you hope that this information will be used? And how do you, uh, you know, in addition to sending it out to other stakeholders and interested parties, how will it get to the folks who are really in the trenches, I would say, working in small community-based organizations? Because this can really give a greater credibility to their work. I mean, it's information that in some cases we know, but you know people like data and that's okay. We, you have some data for them. Um, how, how will it be used and how will it get to the groups that really could use this to to impact their work? Yeah. So. One of our thing, one of the approaches we're taking at the Center for Health Equity is um, build alliances and share power, right? And so there's a power sharing part mm -hmm. of that. Power sharing is like showing up when you need to. And so for me, one of the things about doing this issue and putting front and center topics that wouldn't normally be talked about in health context about the importance of it was putting that weight as you're talking to behind it. So people who are doing this work can say the AMA has published on this, like the AMA is talking about it. Because as, as the house of medicine, right, as organized medicine, it does lend credibility to it. I have been on the other side of this as a funder, right, where people will tell me we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. And it is important to have those data points for them to show that too, right? And so I thought about this from the other end when I was trying to raise money for things and to be able to say like, oh, but this is a proven thing. It's just not Deanna making it up. This is out there, right? And so that's what this, uh, that's what this was doing was also building the breadth of the field to have these conversations that they were important enough to be in the journal of health ethics that they should be important enough to have conversations in whether they be in teaching institutions or in communities about what we should be doing because these are how people make decisions right this is how funding gets decided these are these conversations that people who have the resources use to make some determinations. And we wanted to have that in there. Without that context or story, they just become anecdotal. And that is that that is that is the invisibility that everyone talks about. Is no one's talking about these things. No one is having these conversations. No one recognizes the need. It goes back to that thing about the babies. We didn't talk about, we didn't, they were fine. All, all of them, all those groups of Latinas, they were fine. Don't worry about them. And part of that is having this, di this different conversation to be like, one, we're not just diseases. Those are very important. We have all these other contexts that are important and we need people to show up and we need to have these important conversations. So it, it, you said it took 18 months to do. And, and, and my understanding of all the work that many of us are doing is that everything takes longer in COVID time. Um, 
was it um, understood why something of this nature was needed um, at the AMA and that it was really someone saying, you know, uh, we're going to do this and, and seeing it through that was the, the uh, piece that made it successful ultimately? I know the Journal of Ethics was going to do this article. I just happened to be at the right place and my colleagues at the right time. Mm -hmm. And so we were very lucky to be able to curate it and have influence over it. I think that the Journal of Ethics actually has been pushing in a lot of different ways the equity conversations. They've talked about abolitionist medicine. They've talked about racism in more details. They've done the Native American health. Like So they've talked, they've been pushing because it's about ethics, right? Like where we show up. So... In that way, this would have happened with or without me. I am glad I got to influence and say, think about it maybe differently than maybe they would have, or maybe they wouldn't have. Maybe they would have recognized all these points. Uh, but I think that it speaks to the timeliness of people want people in groups wanting to be seen mm -hmm. and also the understanding that these groups deserve their voices to be centered, right? So the other important thing about this was to also make sure we had authors that were from the community, right? It's a very much for us, by us, right? It can't just be other people. Like allies in this work are very important and we need to center those voices most close to the issue, right? But that's just it, is that, the, that we have to be part of these conversations and it's and so part of equity, one of the key things about equity work, right? And actually all of the organizing work is those who are most central to the issue should be central in the solution. Right, those most proximal should be part of the answer to the thing. The other part about in medicine that we talk about in a different way is centering the voices of the marginal, the historically marginalized and minoritized people, communities, voices in this. That those who didn't get the autonomy to speak to themselves. When I talk about health equity in this way, I talk about it is important to have these narratives because it gives us autonomy and self-determination. If we can't tell our stories, right, we can't advocate for ourselves. If we don't, and the stories also mean the data, right? And then we don't exist. We get to be invisibilized because it doesn't exist. It's not out there in the, in the collective social narrative. So for me, this is about autonomy. This is about being able to advocate. This is about um, the ability to be seen. And so, and for any marginalized and minoritized community, that is key to kind of moving the movement to at least be recognized. So tell me, how did you find the contributors for the journal? Oh, we both sent out, so one, <clears throat> so one, this was editorial, just like everything else. So we didn't get to handpick. We got to invite. I got to call some really select people and be like, I invite you. Um, I know you've been writing some amazing things. I invite you to um, submit. And so- while we had editorial control about thinking about it, we didn't get to just pick. We didn't hand select them. So it went through every other process. So those authors get all the credit for being amazing authors um, and be going through an 18 month process, which is a normal process, right? That's the other thing is you have to be in this for the log haul. Like it wasn't extra time. This is how it re really was. It, it takes to kind of put out these issues. We did a call and then we did a general call for articles in these areas. We talked about what we thought about, right? We gave some parameters of what we were, what we thought about about um, Latinx health, and then I called up some of my um, amazing colleagues in this field and said, "Look, we have this opportunity. I think you're doing some amazing work." I had to do some convincing with some groups, right? Um, because their work wasn't in the traditional. They didn't. See, so, for instance, I, I'm going to call her out on this. Marina, who's talking about birth of ceremony, was like, I don't see myself in traditional medicine, right? And I said, right, but your story still needs to be told, right? Because the doula movement, the midwife movement, and what that has meant for us has been, is, is truly important. And so we had to have some of those conversations because if you don't see yourself in it, right, you don't have to talk to it. That's the other part about this. We need to own the health thing. We need to own our role in medicine and that we deserve that too. So I'll get off the soapbox, but yes. So I did some calls. They did, they did, but they did all the heavy lifting. They did all the work to get this in these articles. And so, and we have a collection that are, like I said, range, range the plethora. Um, and people will look at it and be like, there's stuff everywhere. And for somebody who likes to be like completely organized, right. It could be distracting. And for someone who gets it is like, right. It is everywhere because that's what this is. So for those who have not seen the journal, and, and we hope that they will uh, certainly be interested to, to uh, check it out and to use it, more importantly, to use it, 
How is it organized? Um, because sometimes I think folks are just overwhelmed when you think about a journal from the AMA. Oh my gosh, it's going to be in, in uh, I don't know, Dr. East or something. <laughs> and we're not going to be able to really understand what it means at a, at a community level, for instance. Mm-hmm. How was it, how was it yeah. organized? So it's organized. So some of that, the, we have some of that, right? Because we are a journal, right? And, and you're all, and your so, doctors. So many of you all. Right, exactly. So there's a case and commentary, which is a traditional, like, here's a medical case and here's the commentary on that. And we talked about the social implications of that. We were clear to talk about that, not just the medical implications, but what those social implications are. And then there's other things like medicine and society. What does medicine and health mean in a larger society? That's the ethics part, which I think is great, right? Because it's kind of like, what is, so that's where the colonialism comes into. There's a case study about like what this, how this disease infiltrated based on colonialism. It is this larger social context of what is that, what is colonialism, the social cultural determinative health mean for, you know, as a society on health? We have the history of medicine is also in there. And then we have personal personal narratives where people are talking about what it means for them. And the, one of our personal narratives is about community health workers from a community health worker, what this work has meant to them, why why they see it as important um, and how it's a cultural value. And then we just have the normal letters to editors. So there's, you know, um, I, I don't know if it's any different than any other one. I don't want to think that it is, but I do think that we were very clear about putting the um the cultural and social context and same in real words and not in euphemisms, right? To talk about racism, to talk about supremacy, to talk about those things and where they land because that's, because we need to start having those honest, hard conversations. So, and there's podcasts, I should say. So if you oh, don't even want to pick right, it up. Let's thing, that. Yep. There are podcasts involved with most of the articles. Okay. So there's a variety of ways for people to take in the information, which is wonderful because everybody doesn't learn in the same way. Uh, so some people may want to read it. Some people may want to listen to a podcast about it. So that that was a, a great strategy. When you think about uh, some of the uh, care that is available uh, in Chicago, um, particularly from FQHCs, right? There are at least two FQHCs that, and and let me stop talking in acronyms, Federally Qualified Healthcare Center. Um, and, and I'm going to ask you, why don't you talk, tell us a little bit about what an FQHC is? I want to lift up two of the ones that actually we worked with, and I know you're familiar with as mm-hmm. well. So the federally qualified health centers, right, have sliding fee scales. They are meant to be accessible to all um, to provide care. In order to be a federally qualified health center, you have to be in areas that are considered need areas. So they so they apply for it and they go. Chicago has some amazing ones and have done some amazing work in building them up in communities. I'm not... Mary, which ones are you working with right now? I'm thinking, well, we've worked with Esperanza. Yes. And we're working with Erie, and we've been working with Erie for, um, goodness, uh, almost three years now. They, you know, and again, um, primarily Latinx community. Right. What federally qualified health centers have become is centers, right, uh, of their community. Um, Many of the federally qualified health centers who have served um, communities of color um, have also out of necessity, become different kind of resources, right? They're the referral center. They're not just health, they're referrals. Some of them have um, gyms now, right? Because we knew the exercise was important. Where were our communities going to go? So we're going to build it ourselves. Um, farmer's market, like childcare. They've built up all these things because they were needed in the communities and they become a trusted partner. So for as a funder and also working as I do now, federally qualified health centers kind of had the beat, heartbeat of their community, right? Like people go to them. If... If, if they are being utilized, if they are growing, it's because people trust them, right? And so they are central to building that. They're also central to voicing, right? And centering those voices of those communities because they see firsthand what's happening. That's who you talk to when, you know, you talk to the physicians on the ground, the FQHCs, when COVID hit, what's really happening? Where are people going? Are they showing up, Right. And so, because if you look at just the data, and so this is my example that I love to give, like if you look at some of the data of some of the hospitals, they'll be like, there were fewer heart attacks during COVID, fewer ER visits for heart attacks. And the truth is, there were probably more, you know, the same or more, but people didn't come to the hospital, right? But our FQHE sells it right out. They're like, yeah, people aren't coming in. Let's tell you why. So we got to think about this differently, right? They were the ones on the ground. And so FQHCs are fundamental in us understanding and serving communities. And I think there's a misconception that the services are somehow not up to par 
And because they're in, and you know, in many cases in under-resourced communities, there's this, um, I think, idea that, and somehow or another, the the treatment or the services are are not going to be up to standards that you would get at any other place. And and people don't understand that because they are federally qualified, they must be, they must be, and really just state of the art um, facilities. I mean, the first time I went on. a tour of uh, Howard Brown uh, Health Center, where we've done some work over the years, and then over at Erie, I was blown away. Um, Because again, there's this perception that, oh, this isn't going to be as good. And actually, in some cases, it could very well be better. Right. And the linkages they have, especially, right? Because they're primary care, the linkages they have, especially care. And let's be clear, if you all remember, I know we've all blocked it out, that FQHCs were trusted partners. So we need to get the vaccine out. That's who had them first. Not your individual provider, right? That's exactly right. It was the fairly qualified health centers because they knew how to serve the community and get things out. So, yeah, that's a really good point, I think, to make. And and one that I think has not been lifted up enough that you go to the folks on the ground who are going to have the most access, the most regular access and are accessible to the folks that you're trying to get it to. Right. Because, as we know, folks who had lots of um, resources, shall we say, um, would go wherever, fly wherever, do whatever they needed to um, get the vaccine. When we had organizations, we had community centers. And to your point about it, really they have become community centers. Yep. They are so integral to the communities where they reside um, that it would be a, a huge, huge um, detriment to, to lose them. And so you're absolutely right. That's a really good point, which I think, again, people don't understand about uh, federally qualified healthcare centers. Really, really important piece. So um, we're, we're almost wrapping up. It's almost time. It goes so quickly. I just want to hear from you a little bit about what you hope for uh, from your work uh, and from the AMA overall, if you could wave a magic wand, um, what would you uh, hope for um, over the next you know, several years, uh, particularly as we live with uh, the pandemic? Because I, I, frankly, not that I'm a doctor, but I often play one, um, that, we, <laughs> that we are, you know, that we're living with. I, I think we're going to come to understand how to live with COVID. I guess I don't feel like it's going away right. anytime soon. But what would you hope to have happen um, with regard to um, health equity, uh, either in your role or, or overall? So what COVID, so COVID did a lot of things to uncover inequities, not uncover, that's the wrong term. It, it, it shone a light on them, be clear. They were always there, right? And all of we us knew that, right? but it literally showed this bright light that no one could kind of, kind of ignore, right? Like they're like, oh, that's an issue. And so- right. <clears throat> If what it did for AMA also is made us, um, for the probably one of the first times in its history, made us kind of responsible directly to the community. Like our physicians at the time, our president um, was in the spotlight answering questions about what COVID meant, especially to communities of color. And at that time, we had Dr. Patrice Harris, who was our first um, female African-American um, president of the board of trustees for the AMA. So it was important to see her out there, right, speaking to communities. At the same time, we did a. We actually got. A, we were able to get the time get um, a set of physicians who spoke Spanish who could speak to it too. So I think for AMA, this also put them in the realm of being responsive to communities that communities could see AMA. So you started this off with like some of you may know who the American Medical Association or at least by name is, right? I think the credibility of trying to understand and get real information. Um, the AMA is responsible for. So that puts the burden of us to what I want us to become is a. An anti-racist multicultural organization, not just in name, but in practice and policy. And not just to say that we have it, right? I'm not looking just for a sticker on us because I know who we are as a house of medicine. I know what kind of global reach AMA can have. Um, And that's how we're going to have health equity because AMA is going to continue to push this work. That's what I want them to do. And like organizations and other organizations are going to get on board too because they will see their role in it. They will be called to the table for it. And I mean, just like anything else, no one wants to be left in the cold. So I'm looking for that. I'm looking for like a concerted way that we can have these conversations and move health equity. That's my ultimate goal. That's why I'm here. So, well, thank you so much for all the work you've done and all the work I know you're going to continue to do. Um, so happy to have you here on Gathering Ground. You've been listening to Deanna Darahay, who's with the American Medical Association in the health equity division. And 
congratulations on, on all the success that you've had. And uh, I'll, I'll see you soon, in person, I'm sure, very soon. It's always lovely talking to you.